0: Would you please welcome Corey Doctorow?
1: Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back in Sydney and um, to be back in this part of the, the city. The last time I was here, I spoke at Vivid and, and different building, but same harbor. So it's nice to see that it's still where I left it. Uh, So the the future is uh, always closer than we think. And the reason that we miss the future when it arrives is that it's often very mundane, right? We, we think about the Internet of Things, and we think that it'll look like uh, something off the set of Tron. You know, you will walk into this house wearing a white jumpsuit, and the house will all be sort of white and curvilinear, and you will gesture, and the lights will come on, and you'll say, tea, hot, earl grey, and your kitchen will spring to life. Um, but that's not what you need to do to make an Internet of Things world. We, we've already accomplished an Internet of Things world. Uh, an Internet of Things world is a world in which the most salient fact about the devices and technologies you use is the computers inside of them that's how you know that you're living in the internet of things world and today we inhabit computers right your uh, uh, skyline, as the skylines of every great city in the world, have been colonized by these crazy finance industry-driven, stark architect impossibly tall, willowy buildings. And, and you might ask yourself, as you watch these very tall, alarmingly tall, willowy buildings, how it is that something so tall and willowy can stay erect in a seismically active uh, uh, place with high winds and 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 all the other uh, um, depredations that we subject our tall structures to, and the answer is something called seismic damping. Uh, active seismic damping is when you use software to drive enormous masses in the building that shifts to allow the building to lean back into the wind and to to adjust to earthquakes. Um, Those buildings are computers. The reason you know that those buildings are computers is if you change the software in them and you make a mistake that's grave enough, those buildings fall over. The most salient fact about those buildings is that they're computers. If you uh, live in a new-build house here in Australia or in Canada, where I'm from, any place where the climate is not always your friend, um, it will have such high-spec insulation that without computer-controlled respiration... Uh, those buildings become uninhabitable. We we found that out in Florida during the subprime crisis. They turned off the power to all these buildings. That turned off their um, computer-controlled HVAC systems, their their climate control systems. Six months later, those buildings were so full of black mold that they had to scrape them down to the foundation slab and start over again. The most salient fact about a contemporary house is the computer in it. A house is a high-rise that you live in. Cars. Cars are computers that you whip down the road in at 100 kilometers an hour. Uh, The way that you know cars are computers is because when the computers go wrong, it's really quite terrible. Uh, This summer, gone past, a winter in, in, the, um, in Australia, last, last uh, July, uh, Chrysler had to recall 1.4 million Jeeps because it turned out that the um, software that allowed them to uh, serve as on-demand mobile hotspots, you could punch your credit card into your car and it would set up a Wi-Fi hotspot to distract your children on long drives with Netflix, that software allowed anyone in the world to take over the car's steering, brakes, <laughs> transmission, uh, radio, uh, windshield wipers to send video to its screens. Um, they had to recall 1.4 million of those cars. The most salient fact about those cars was the computer in them. An um, uh, uh, excellent security researcher named Sammy Kamkar just demonstrated a gadget that he made that he uh, can uh, manufacture for less than $20 US called the Roll Cage. A roll cage will unlock and start any co- contemporary model Ford car. Uh, the most salient fact about that car is its computer. And then, of course, there's Dieselgate. Volkswagen taught us that our cars are mobile computers with the power to do genuinely strange things, pre-modern things. You know, before the modern era, we didn't have science. We had alchemy, alchemists. Uh, well, like all humans, alchemists were not great lab techs. And so when they tried to experiment on the modern world, to, on the world that they inhabited, to, to find out how it worked, they would subject the things that, they, that were around them to experiments, uh, uh, to interventions and try and see what happened when they intervened in these things, when they combined chemicals or, or did some other process. And it seemed like every time they did it, they got a different uh, outcome. Well, the reason for that is that they just weren't very good lab technicians. But what they assumed was that the world was demon-haunted, that the world, if you looked at it and tried to interrogate it, demons, playful demons, would uh, counter your hubris by changing how the material world reacted to you when you interacted with it to confound you in your efforts to unpick the world's inner workings. Well, Volkswagen made a demon-haunted car (laughs) because Volkswagen made a car that when you took it into a regulator's uh, smog check, it would detect that it was being watched to see how it behaved, and it would change its behavior until you stopped looking. Right? Volkswagen showed us that the most salient fact about our cars is the computers in them, and that when the computers go wrong, it goes terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, Volkswagen uh, diesel cars, the, the ones that we know about, there were probably more emitted, more um, uh, toxic emissions than all of UK cars and industry and power generation combined every year that they were on the road. Now, it's not just that our bodies are inside of computers. Uh, We have computers inside of our bodies. They nestle in our flesh. In 2013, uh, a researcher named uh, Barnaby Jack, who actually died last year, came to Australia, came to Sydney, and gave a presentation on his work on implanted defibrillators. Marvelous technology. If you uh, are someone whose heart is uh, losing its rhythm, the doctor can cut you open, and she spreads your ribs and attaches a powerful battery with a computer to your heart, and it listens to your heartbeat. And When your heart stops beating, it jolts you back to life. Uh, It's an amazing thing. You probably know someone who's alive today because of one of these. And of course, doctors want to read the telemetry off of these computers in our body. And they want to update the firmware, the software on these computers in our body. And attaching a USB cable to a computer that's inside your chest cavity is messy. So these computers have wireless interfaces. And that's where Barnaby Jack came in because he showed that these wireless interfaces were badly secured. And from 30 feet away, he could deliver a lethal shock to you. It's not a coincidence that when Dick Cheney had his own defibrillator implanted, he had the wireless interface turned off. Um, Some of you uh, are a little older than me or about my age. Some of you are a little younger. If you like me and you grew up with the Walkman or you're a little younger and you grew up with MP3 players, you will log enough punishing earbud hours that there will come a day when you will definitely need a hearing aid. And that hearing aid is not gonna be an analog transistorized retro hipster beige hearing aid. (laughs) It's going to be a computer that you put inside your head, and depending on how it's configured, depending on how it's designed, and depending on how it's regulated, it will tell you what's being said around you, or it will stop you selectively from hearing some of the things that are said around you, or make you hear things that aren't being said, or maybe tell someone else. Like in the UK, I'm sure Theresa May, our Secretary of State, who's uh, trying to pass uh, the Snoopers Charter, our version of the uh, the um, uh, surveillance bill, the data retention bill, I'm sure that she would love it if hearing aids could selectively or not selectively report back to the Secretary of State what people are hearing. Now, our, our law books are full of rules for computers that were a terrible idea back when computers were just things that lived on your desk. But now that our computers have metastasized into things that colonize every Uh, device and technology that we live in, that our bodies spend most of the day inside of computers and our bodies are filled with computers, those dumb laws from the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s even, they have become potentially fatal. Uh, So um, in the United States in 1998... Uh, The American Congress passed a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. You will know the DMCA because it's the author of all your favorite YouTube videos. This video has been taken down because of a claim under the DMCA. Um, The DMCA is a great, big, gnarly hairball of legislation. I'm not going to run through the whole thing, but there's one really salient piece of it, which is Section 1201, which prohibits removing digital locks. So if you have a device that has a digital lock that restricts access to a copyrighted work, then removing that lock... Even if you're not doing anything untoward, even if you are doing something legal, removing that lock is a felony punishable by a five-year term in prison and a $500,000 U.S. fine for a first offense. And. Um, when the U.S. passed this law, it's set about ensuring that all of its trading partners would have equivalent laws in the books. Australia got this law through the U.S.-Australia uh, Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Canada got it through Bill uh, C-11, which was passed through exclusively through consultation with the American trade representative and um, American entertainment executives, and without any consultation with Canadian uh, entertainment industry executives or companies. Um, it has spread everywhere. The U.S. trade representative is patient zero in an epidemic of bad internet law that's made its way all over the world. Now, um, back when this was passed, its major goal was to make sure that Australians couldn't buy DVDs in America and watch them in their DVD players, right? It was to stop you from arbitraging cheap media from one place and bringing it into another, to stop you from watching things that hadn't been released to your uh, distribution window. And that was kind of horrible and a rip-off and justly made people feel like it was a bad idea and so on. But Um, As computers started to colonize more devices, the power to use this law to accomplish other commercial goals became apparent to more and more sections of industry. Because if you can add uh, some software to a device, well, then it has a copyrighted work in it. And if you add a lock to that device that restricts access to the software, then unlocking that lock becomes a felony. And that means that if you use the software to control how the product is used after you sell it, that reconfiguring that device to remove those controls becomes a crime. Um, So uh, the upshot of this is it's turned everything that we own into a kind of descendant of the inkjet printer, where the consumables, the parts, and the features all come uh, with price tags associated with them, and only from people who are approved by the original manufacturer. And cars are a really good example of this. So, uh, um, if you uh, it used to be that if you wanted to fix get your car fixed, you could take it to any mechanic. The mechanic, if it wasn't if 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 she wasn't affiliated with your car's manufacturer, she might buy third party parts and use them to fix your car. Maybe those parts would be better or cheaper or both. Than the original manufacturer's parts, but computer, but cars are computers. And uh, the manufacturers routinely lock up the data about your car behind a digital lock that's a felony to remove. And so if you want to fix a car, if you're a mechanic and you want to fix a car, and, uh, you will need to be able to read the telemetry off the engine. And you can't just buy a tool from anyone to do that because it's against the law to make that tool because you'd have to remove the lock to make that tool. So you have to buy the tool that lets you diagnose the car from the car's manufacturer. And when you buy that tool from the car's manufacturer, the manufacturer makes you sign a license agreement that says you're only going to buy parts from the manufacturer, too. And so it has this effect of just raising the price of service on on your devices and limiting what kind of service you can do. Some repairs simply become impossible. And this is particularly important when we start to get into smaller devices, uh, electronic devices, the phone in your pocket, because... Um, uh, service is is between three and four percent of the GDP of most industrial nations. Service and repair, and it's intrinsically onshore, local, uh, because you can't send your car to China or India to get it fixed. It's they provide uh, middle class jobs to local people who serve their communities. And if you can't diagnose and repair without taking a license from the manufacturer, then what you can do and what you can't do, and who can repair and who can't, becomes subject to manufacturers oversight. So it has this real um, uh, uh, economic uh, knock-on that is manifestly unfair and really um, uh, should upset you. Uh, This year, The American Copyright Office, as it does every three years, had a hearing on on whether there should be some exceptions granted to this. And one of the proposals was an exception for mechanics to jailbreak cars to to find out what's wrong with them so they can buy third-party parts. And GM filed comments with the U.S. Copyright Office that said essentially, like, do you remember that old ad campaign, It's Not Your Father's Oldsmobile? Like, we weren't speaking metaphorically. Like, that really isn't your father's Oldsmobile. That's still our Oldsmobile. The fact that you bought it doesn't make it your Oldsmobile. We control its destiny forever, right? You are a tenant farmer of your car. So speaking of tenant farmers, you may have heard the old saw. If you are not paying for the product, you are the product. This is often said to people who uh, wake up one day and discover that uh, Facebook is a giant Skinner box designed to teach them to undervalue their privacy. Uh, And... um, It turns out that if the state offers to intervene on firms' behalf to allow these kinds of abusive practices, it doesn't matter if you've bought the product, you are the product. So I mentioned tenant farmers. John Deere is one of the largest manufacturers of farm equipment in the world. John Deere locks its tractors with digital locks. Now, John Deere's tractors, when you rumble around your field with them, they conduct a centimeter accurate soil density survey using the torque sensors on the wheels because they know where they are at all times and they know how hard they're having to work. But that data is not available to the farmer. The only way the farmer can get that data is to buy it bundled with seed. You have to buy it from a, a... uh, their seed uh, partner, anyone want to guess who their seed partner is? Yeah, of course their seed partner is Monsanto. And you can see the mustache twirl from here, right? But that turns out like not to be even the major occupation of John Deere with digital oxen tractors. Um, they uh, have region-wide insight into future crop yields because they know about soil conditions across whole regions, and that's proprietary data that they can use to play the futures market, and that's what they're hoping to do with this data, right? Even if you are paying for the product, you're still the product, so this sucks, right? It sucks that we have this dumb internet law that takes these devices that are proliferating and makes us tenants of them instead of owners of them that restricts who can add things to them, that sets up these abusive relationships, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is security because we have exactly one experimental methodology for determining whether or not something works, and that's disclosure. Anyone can design a security system that works so well that he himself can't think of a way of breaking it. That just means that you've designed a security system that works against people who are stupider than you. Right? Before we had science, I mentioned we had alchemy. Alchemy looked a lot like science, but for 500 years, alchemy stalled out because alchemists didn't tell each other what they thought they'd learned. Alchemists performed experiments but they kept the results of their experiments a secret because they were all in competition to turn lead into gold. We call that 500-year period the Dark Ages because alchemists, because they weren't subjecting themselves to adversarial peer review, where your friends tell you about the mistakes you've made and your enemies excoriate you for being stupid enough to have made them, um, because, because alchemists never told people what they thought they'd learned, they, each of them had to discover for themselves in the hardest way possible that drinking mercury was a terrible idea, Right. <laughs> We only have one methodology to defeat the greatest of all human frailties, which is self-deception, and that's disclosure, and it's especially important in security. But the same rules that prohibit breaking digital locks prohibit giving people information that they could use to break a digital lock, because if you know about a flaw that the programmer made when she made your iPhone, when he made your car, then you know how to attack that software to unlock the digital lock. And so. Publishing information about flaws that you found, vulnerabilities that you found in technologies, means uh, that, uh, that you are subject to both criminal and civil liability. Now, this uh, sometimes the, the disclosures happen, but when they do happen, they happen later, and they happen in a way that's less... Um, maybe belligerent, right? In a way that where the claims are softened because you don't want to get sued by the manufacturer. You don't want the manufacturer to call up the prosecutor and ask them to bring action against you because you've, you've weakened their digital logs. And this means that, um, our devices become these kind of simmering reservoirs of long live digital pathogens with the power to, uh, screw us in every conceivable way from asshole to appetite. And, um, Those vulnerabilities get discovered independently by third parties. The fact that um, uh, a security researcher found it and didn't disclose it doesn't mean that nobody else is ever going to find it. It means that when a bad guy finds it, when a foreign surveillance agency, when a cyber weapons dealer, when a a griefer or an identity thief discovers this bug and weaponizes it, that your manufacturer will not have been informed of it and um, will not have patched it, and you will be vulnerable to it. So, um, again, this Copyright Office hearing this year we heard from a lot of different kinds of security researchers who've found information out about devices that uh, that make them unfit for our use that they can't tell us about. Alarmingly, one class of devices that routinely vulnerabilities are found in that um, the researchers can't disclose is voting machines. Um, This has profound implications. Uh, Another set of comments in this docket came from a researcher named uh, Jay Radcliffe, who works for an organization called Rapid7. They're a security research outfit. And Radcliffe's a type 1 diabetic. And this is a good time to be a type 1 diabetic, because historically type 1 diabetics had to be their own lab techs. You had to sample your blood, you had to figure out how much insulin you needed, and you had to stick yourself with it. And as I mentioned, humans are really terrible lab techs, and so uh, you get the dose wrong, uh, you'd be too little, you'd be too much, you'd come too late, you come too frequently. And um, having the wrong amounts of insulin in your body shortens your life. Right? It makes you die younger. But now we have insulin pumps. And the insulin pumps uh, continuously sample your blood sugar. They do extremely precise measurements of insulin, and they dope you with the, exactly the right amount of insulin at just the right moment continuously. And it's amazing. But Jay Radcliffe won't wear an insulin pump because he's audited the software of insulin pumps. And though he can't tell you what he found, he's decided that it's much better for him to risk taking years off his life by being a crappy lab tech than it is for him to have a device that, where he can be killed where he stands from 30 feet away, because that's what would happen if the wireless interface on your insulin pump were compromised and all of the insulin in it were dumped into your bloodstream. So not disclosing vulnerabilities uh, means that they last longer. And as we move into a world that's more made of computers, We should be worried about that, because if you think back to those Internet of Things promotional videos where people wave their hands to make the lights come on, and they say tea, black, gray, Earl Earl Grey hot to make the, the kitchen jump to life, that house, that house where you can gesture and speak no matter where you are in order to make it respond to you, that is a house in which no matter where you are, there's a camera pointed at you and a microphone listening to you. And the only way that we know that those cameras and microphones are not leaking what's uh, happening inside your house is if the software is trustworthy, if the software has been audited, if the software, if there are as few impediments as possible to uh, improving the quality of that software and removing its defects. Unfortunately, our security agencies have taken it upon themselves not to make our software more robust, but to make it less robust. So the Five Eyes security agencies in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States have a strategy for attacking their adversaries through their computers um, where they find vulnerabilities in the computers that their adversaries use, um, Chinese spies, Russian spies, terrorists, and they write... Um, software uh, malware that exploits those bugs to do things like take over their computers and watch them covertly through their cameras or decrypt their email before they encrypt it so that they can see it even though, even though it 's been encrypted they can see it before it gets encrypted, or any of the other things that you can do to to attack people through their devices and obviously there 's a lot of pretty Uh, uh, interesting kind of Tom Clancy things that you can do to people if you can get in through their devices, you know, Stuxnet being an example. Now, the problem is that um, the same computers that are used by the adversaries of our security services are used by us. It's not like we have bad guy OS and good guy OS, and we can, uh, if we uh, don't fix the bugs in bad guy OS, the bad guys are vulnerable. And we can just patch the bugs in good guy OS, and the rest of us will be fine. And so they are invested in discovering vulnerabilities that they don't disclose to manufacturers. Instead, that they, we- they weaponize them. They're not only invested in discovering vulnerabilities, they're invested in creating them. So in the Snowden leaks, we learned about two programs. Uh, in the United Kingdom, the program is called uh, Edge Hill. In the, in the United States, it's called Bull Run. And those two programs have a collective budget of a quarter billion United States dollars per year. And they are entirely concerned with introducing vulnerabilities into commonly used software and systems that we rely on for life and limb, right? To add bugs to our code. And the theory of this is called no bus," no one but us. No one but us will ever find these bugs. Right? So if that theory works, right? If the, if the NSA or the Canadian Security Services or the Australian Security Services finds a bug and doesn't tell anyone about it, and no one except them ever finds it, well then yeah, they can totally use that to attack their adversaries, and no one will use that to attack us except maybe our own security services. Um, but um, the problem is that nobus just doesn't work. So at the Chaos Communications Congress in 2013, this is an annual security conference in Hamburg, Um, uh, Jacob Applebaum, who's a, a WikiLeaks volunteer who is also a journalist, made a presentation of a document that had been leaked from the NSA to him, uh, a document called the Tailored Access Operations Manual. Tailored Access Operations Group, is the uh, they're like the SkyMall of uh, Five Eyes spies. They produce little gadgets that spies can use to attack their adversaries. So, like, are you after someone who's got an iPhone? Here are nine ways we have of exploiting iPhones. Just order it from the catalog, and we'll deliver it. It's like Q in a James Bond movie. Right? So he presented the, the TAO manual on stage, and it's full of no bus technology, technology that um, they think no one but them will ever figure out how to exploit. And so Jake is presenting all of these exploits, and he said, by the way, you see this exploit here for iOS, for iPhones? Researchers on this stage yesterday presented this. So these have already been independently discovered by other people. Now, these researchers came and presented it, but if they can discover it, then there's probably researchers discovering it and not presenting it, not disclosing it, but weaponizing it and giving it to criminals and giving it to foreign spies who are attacking your corporations uh, and using those bones to um, uh, exfiltrate corporate uh, trade secrets that they can use to give them a competitive edge and all the other things that um, spies do. Now, Snowden showed us not just the TAO manual, not just, um, not just about Bull Run and Edge Hill, but he showed us that there is this program of global surveillance that our uh, security agencies have undertaken. Uh, and how do, and it, it raises an interesting question, which is how we got to this point where this very audacious project has been undertaken by our surveillance agencies. How is it that we've gone from the idea that you would um, try to figure out who was suspicious and spy on them to something where we just spy on literally everybody in the world if we can, that we collect all of it. Uh, and it's, it's not because of the budget. Uh, if you look at the U.S. black budget, we have a sense of its order of magnitude. They are not spending, you know... Um, the entire GDP of America spying on the whole world, um, they didn't, we didn't just give them a blank check. They, they are spending a hell of a lot of money, but they don't have a blank check in the security services. What happened uh, between the end of the Cold War and now is that spying got a lot cheaper Uh, So at the height of the Cold War, just before the Berlin Wall fell, in the former East Germany, in the GDR, they had this security agency called the Stasi. The Stasi were probably the most ambitious spy agency in the history of the world. Their goal was to literally spy on everybody in the country. They had one snitch for every 60 people in East Germany, so a ratio of 1 to 60. Today, the NSA has managed to put the whole world under surveillance. And again, it's hard to know exactly how many people at the NSA are working on this, but we have a sense of what the maximum number is because we know how many people have top-secret clearance in the United States. At a ratio of about one person to 10,000. So from 1989 to today, we went from one to 60 to spy on people to one to 10,000 to spy on people. We made it much cheaper to spy on people. We gave them a a two-and-a-half-order-of-magnitude productivity gain. In, in surveillance. Um, and that's mostly because we pay for the surveillance. Right? We, we, if, if the government said, um, you are required to carry a device that keeps track of who all your friends are and all the places you go and the conversations you have, and um, also any stray thought that you have that you jot a note down or look up, uh, and um, we would rebel, but we actually pay for those devices. Um, <laughs> but cheap surveillance means more surveillance, and it means something else. Uh, in societies, in all societies that we know about, there has been some degree of inequality, and the people who benefited from that inequality um, had to make a calculus about what they would do to stop the people that had a lot less than them from building guillotines. Right? This, is a, this, is a kind of, this is the problem of wealth inequality. How do you ensure that your wealth is viewed as either legitimate enough or your power is viewed as formidable enough that the people who have less than you don't come and take your wealth from you. And um, historically, the way that our societies have attained equilibrium is by finding the sweet spot between um, uh, uh, buying guard labor, surveillance, prisons, uh, high walls, CCTVs, and doing redistribution, building schools and hospitals and all those things that make people feel like it's actually just not that bad, we don't need to build any guillotines. If you read Thomas Piketty's book, uh, he keeps returning to wealth inequality at the, uh, at the um, uh, dawn of the French Revolution and the day before the French Revolution, because his view is that when the wealth inequality gets to that point, that's when we start building guillotines. But if guard labor gets a lot cheaper if it gets much, much cheaper to figure out who's really disgruntled, then you can move the set point for when it makes sense to do redistribution a lot further along the I-can-be-richer-than-all-of-my-countrymen curve and still have something that looks like a stable society. Upset people can be identified and neutralized. Now, this has implications for fair, productive societies because economic elites interfere with good evidence-based policy. Um, the thing is that it's not that elites don't like evidence-based policy, it's just that sometimes evidence-based policy gore the ox of our economic elites, right? The, they, the, the thing that, that is their cherished uh, belief or the source of their wealth... Uh, flies in the face of evidence, you know, so maybe they're, they're involved in the oil industry and they um, uh, officially don't acknowledge climate change. Um, or if you go to Saudi Arabia, there's a superstition about the role of women in, uh, in society that results in the exclusion of 52% of the country from key aspects of public life. This is clearly not evidence-led, right? It's pretty clear that there are women in Saudi Arabia who could be curing cancer or uh, coming up with new energy sources or doing lots of other things that would benefit Saudi Arabia. It, the evidence policy in Saudi Arabia would be to integrate women uh, fully into the workforce and into all parts of, of so- social life. But the non-evidence-based policy driven by the power of the elites is to exclude them from all of those areas. Um, in Canada, where I'm from, we had a really dark 10 years that just ended in which our, uh, our PM uh, was owed his, his election to um, the oil patch and uh, as a consequence, denied climate change. Uh, it was a bad decade to deny climate change in, right? Like it's one thing to 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 be a bit wonky about this in the in the 80s, right? But if in the first decade of the 21st century, you haven't figured out that climate change is important, chances are your, your legacy is gonna be pretty awful, and I think Canada's legacy is gonna be pretty awful. Um, so I think that like empirically, uh, Mass surveillance and the, um, and the greater wealth inequality that it enables is bad for all societies. I think that it, it makes societies less productive, less able to do things that are objectively the best thing to do. But I also think that it has important implications because it's surveillance, not, not because it enables these wider wealth gaps. Um, and those, impl- those implications are felt most keenly by the most vulnerable among us. So you here today, you remember a time when things that are considered normal today were felonies, right? Like like being gay. Or, you know, in California and, and, and Washington State and Colorado now, we have both medical and recreational marijuana laws, right? There was a time when smoking marijuana was illegal, and if you got caught doing it, they put you in jail, and now it's a thing that's being sold in state liquor stores or in private um, uh, uh, shops. Um, how did we get from there to here? Well, we got from there to here because there was a zone in which people for whom something mattered to them that was presently banned. There was a zone in which they could practice that and show that it wasn't that terrible an idea and could quietly convince their neighbors that it was okay. Right? They were outside a cone of like automatic, totalizing surveillance and enforcement. Now, the chances are that today there are people among us who value something who, for whom something is important that our society doesn't accept. And the way that our society will get to a place where those people are able to, to come in from out of the cold, to live normally among us, to contribute fully to our common destiny, is by there being a place in which they can practice what they do without totalizing surveillance without automatic enforcement. So unless you think that in Christmas dinner, at Christmas dinner 2065, your grandkids will say to you, how was it grandma? How was it grandpa? That in 2015, you got it all right. We haven't had any significant moral or social shifts in the last (laughs) half century. You have to ask yourself how we're going to get from here to there if we're going to spy on everything that we do. Now, um, I often get asked if I'm optimistic or pessimistic about this kind of thing. And uh, I think that being optimistic or pessimistic is is making a prediction about the future. And I think science fiction writers are uniquely badly situated to make predictions about the future. Uh, We are Texas marksmen. We fire a shotgun into the side of a barn and then draw a target around the place where the pellets hit. Uh, (laughs) But um, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Because if you were optimistic about the future, you thought we could, we could beat back these bad technology laws and figure out how to use computers to enable us to work together better and to enact better evidence-based policy and to find new efficiencies that solve, solve climate change and let us uh, uh, bridge the gaps between us. You should get out of bed every morning and do everything you can to make that happen. And if you're pessimistic and you think chances are we are headed into a society that, uh, where we will get like both Orwell and Kafka by way of Huxley, uh, <laughs> you should do everything you can every day to stop that from happening. So it doesn't matter if you're optimistic or pessimistic because the, the course of action is the same, which is to do something that you can, uh, to do the next thing that you can think of, to make things better. And I call that hope, right? Hope is why you tread water when your ship sinks in the middle of the sea, not because you have a chance of being picked up, but because everybody who was ever picked up started by treading water. It is the necessary but insufficient condition for making things better. So what is the next thing that we can do to improve our chances of um, making the world safe for computers and making computers safe for humans? Well, I think the next thing to do is we have to kill TPP. Because TPP has lots of terrible things in it, but its internet chapter is uniquely badly written and uniquely poorly considered. It enshrines this digital lock law in uh, international treaty, meaning that no country can repeal it. Um, And it makes many other gross errors about how computers work and how they should work. And I think that it's a non-starter um, I think that if we want trade agreements, they should be negotiated in public. I think that you know governments do not negotiate in secret because they think we'll be pleasantly surprised and they don't <laughs> want to spoil it for us. And I think that you can kill TPP. I think there are lots of organizations working on this in lots of different ways. Here in Australia, though, you have groups that are specifically interested in these questions about technology. So Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I work We work all over the world, and we have members from all over the world. I think that you can can productively join us, and we will represent your interests. But there's an organization here called Electronic Frontiers Australia, who I also think very highly of. There's the Free Software Foundation. There's Creative Commons, which has its own Australian uh, branch and does very good work, and many other organizations besides. And I think that um, getting involved with those activist groups who start with this position that we need to make the world safe for computers and computers safe for human use, um, is the right thing to do, even if you don't think it's the most important fight, because it's not the most important fight. Climate is way more important than computers. Gender equity is way more important than computers. The way that we d- deal with um, Aboriginal people, way more important than computers. But every one of those fights is going to be won or lost on the Internet. Right? The most foundational fight we have is that one, and so we have to win that one first. Thank you. Look at that. I finished at exactly wow. the five-second mark.
0: I don't even know there was one there. Yeah. Corey yeah. Doctorow, another round of applause. How amazing. <laughs> uh, it's so wonderful to hear you speak and to have some of these ideas kind of um, illuminated, uh, things that we think about, but to, to hear the things that we could possibly do or potentially do. But I, I wanted to start, Corey, by um, by finding out about Australia because I've got to say... Uh, I've been reading about this, of course, over the last little while, and and I felt that I just didn't know enough. And you mentioned that we're a member of the Five Eyes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me, what is Australia's role in that? What part do we play?
1: Well, I think that, uh, as you say, you're part of the Five Eyes. Now, a lot of this is shrouded in secrecy. Mm. Um, But we know that the Five Eyes project is to spy on everybody and to do that through um, uh, many means, but included in that is the systematic weakening of critical systems. And I think that both of those are illegitimate goals, regardless of your thoughts about national security. Neither of those are how we should get there. Um, I think that Australia's data retention is part of a template that's being repeated in other places around the world. I mentioned the Snoopers Charter. Canada had Bill C-51 in the last parliament. And, and like many of you, I'm excited to see a change in the Canadian government, uh, because we really had a Genuinely dreadful. I mean, you know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. We, had a we, we genuinely just came out of the back of the Dark team. Ages,
1: too, mate. Yeah, yeah no, no, <laughs> I understand. That's what I mean. Like, you, you, you totally know what it's like to have a genuinely terrible leader. But, <laughs> but uh, in the last parliament, he proposed this this mass surveillance bill that, like the the bill here, requires re- gathering and retention of metadata. And metadata is just data. There's, the computer scientists uh, have no working definition that cleanly divides metadata from data. That the the blithe use of metadata as a category by policymakers is um, it's it's like listening to ancient natural philosophers talk about the ether. Uh, it, it it is it's it's. And, you know, Aaron Swartz said, like, it's the 21st century. It's no longer okay to be in government and not understand the Internet, right? And particularly when you're legislating something like metadata. But this retention of metadata, which we see in Canada, which is being proposed in the United Kingdom, and which you've passed here, as you say, without nearly enough fanfare or or alarm, Mm. um, has many implications. But one of the important ones is that um, all of that data is going to leak right? Uh, We have, like, one methodology for not leaking data, and that's not collecting it, right? Uh, You know, what did we learn from Ashley Madison? What did we learn from the Office of Personnel Management? VTech, the company that... um, makes those ubiquitous children's electronic toys in Hong Kong where you uh, sign up and you give it your children's full names and dates of birth and uh, address and then parents' names and parents' passwords and parents' password hints. They dumped 4.8 million families' personal information yesterday. Mm. Right? These are not the earthquake. These are the tremors. This is, this is going to get much worse. There are much bigger databases, and we're making them bigger still. And so uh, one critical flaw here is, you know, regardless of all the other things that we do, gathering all of this data means that it'll eventually leak. There's also the problem that um, we, we uh, algorithm, unaccountable algorithmic sy- systems that uh, assign guilt to people are, are not democratically accountable. They don't accord with good science. Um, there isn't any, because we, no one tells us how those algorithms work, um, we, we can't tell whether they're working well. Uh, and they tell us that they only work if, if if their workings are not disclosed to us, and so we have these black boxes that try to that, that say who's guilty and who isn't, who is worthy of of um, of deep surveillance and who isn't. And you know, I mentioned Jacob Applebaum before; he published another story with Laura Poitras and others in Der Spiegel. Uh, about the deep packet inspection rules that are used on the fiber taps by the five eyes. This is where they harvest all of the data going on transoceanic fiber cables. And um, they have rules for what they do with that data. They have um, uh, inspection points where the computer looks at the packets and tries to figure out what they're doing. And one of the rules was, if you find someone who is researching privacy technology, all of their future communication should be harvested and stored in full, right? That's... (laughs) <laughs> when we think about what is, it like, a proportionate, good, democratically accountable rule, I don't think that that one would stand up to scrutiny, right? Like, I don't <laughs> think being interested in privacy should be, on its face, evidence that you are up to no good. Uh, I, I, I really don't. And so, uh, in-
0: and yet the assumption is that that is exactly the situation, that you are up to no good. We are presumed guilty, not Well, intercept. that's the assumption
1: embodied in the software. And yeah. I think that, you know, if I were to try and... Uh, say what the advocates of these policies would say if they were called on it, if they, were in, if they were ever subjected to any kind of scrutiny where they had to defend themselves, they would say something like, better safe than sorry. Mm. The fact that we're collecting all your information doesn't mean we're looking at it, but all we're separating the sheep from the goats. We have everybody in the world who's capable of being secret from us, of hiding their actions from us, and we have everything they ever look at. And then if one of them does something bad, well, the normal people who, are, who don't know how to use privacy-enhancing uh, technologies, you know, those people, um, we, we, they're an open book to us. These people, we have to work harder, and so we're retaining everything. Mm. And, um, but we won't ever look at it unless you do something suspicious. This is antithetical to, the, to you know, what we think of as fun foundational democratic policy.
0: Mm, okay. The differences then between, say, what's happened with... You've you mentioned the Snoopers Charter and also, say, what happens in, in the US and then what's happening in, in Canada as well. Like, the Snoopers Charter's been uh, pushed through very quickly yeah. in a, kind of a similar way as this, but it's, it's all based on how can we secure ourselves better because of incidences like in, in Paris recently.
1: Although, you know, all the... Paris bombers, just like the Boston bombers, just like the nine eleven attackers, just like the seven seven bombers, all already known to the security services.
0: Right. So then, right? yeah,
1: um, the, the the failure was connecting the dots and uh, adding more dots. Don't make doesn't make it easier to connect the salient ones, <laughs> right? The, the theory of the the larger haystack theory of needle discovery is like has <laughs> has no uh, easily understandable basis. In fact, unless the basis is. You know, I, I um, get taken out to a lot of nice lunches by people who sell servers, uh, which I think is one of the critical pieces uh, about surveillance is that surveillance has a business model. Mm. Uh, and um, it, it, that means that there are people who lobby for it regardless of any other benefits. It has a, it, it has a very particularized, concentrated benefit to a small number of people who can... Uh, you know, the, the classic corruption problem is when I do something that makes me very rich and that makes everybody else just a little poorer, right? I, I pump out pollution. Everybody has to put a filter on their tap. Um, everybody has a smaller, small charge that they have to make, but I save loads of money that I can use to lobby to let me go on polluting, whereas everybody else out there has this very diffuse set of costs that they have a hard time sort of piling together to use to push back against my effluent. And I think that if we... That's going to be my next band name. Push back against my effluent. But I think Heavy that in metal. surveillance, you know, surveillance imposes a cost on all of us, but that cost is small for most of us.
0: And it's pushed onto the consumer. It's pushed onto you and I.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, not least that the cost of data retention mm. is the, is the um, future cost of those breaches, right? We are all going to pay the future cost of those breaches. Uh, the good news is that I think that, um, we have reached peak indifference to surveillance that like, although surveillance is by no means done, it's not like there's ever going to be a time in which fewer people care about this stuff, (laughs) right? Like from now on every couple of weeks, 3 million people's lives will be ruined. Mm. Uh, and those people will show up at our door saying, what can we do? Uh, you were right all those years that you failed to convince me that privacy mattered, which, You know, I'll put my hand up and say the privacy movement completely failed to convince anyone that privacy mattered. Now they're finding out the hard way that it matters. Our job now is that when they show up, we say, uh, no hard feelings, here's what you do, uh, as opposed to, no, 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 it's transcendentally complicated, just go be a privacy nihilist, which which is the thing that I think we need to worry about.
0: Have we reached peak indifference? You think we have?
1: Yeah, I I just don't think that, like, is there ever going to be a time in which fewer people... Have had direct experience of the ways in which privacy uh, uh, a failure to exercise good privacy hygiene can harm them yeah you know
0: how can we get over that then if if say for example, these mandatory um, you know data retention laws pass through and we barely sneeze and there all of a sudden they were there, how can you reach beyond that to make us care about what it is that we do, as I said at the start like i 'm happy to Pretty much have all my data collected by anybody, so I can have convenience. It just I want convenience, essentially.
1: So I I, I like Larry Lessig's theory of social change, which is that there are four forces that act on us in society: there's code, law, norms, and markets. And um, I think that if it's technically possible to be more private, um, then. Um, it changes the debate about privacy. So if we have technical tools that make us more private, that that is a, a good thing. Um, I think historically privacy tools have assumed that you were a super nerd because in order to understand the the, the um, fairly nuanced technical relations that res- that um, will harm you if your privacy is breached, you already had to be a super nerd. In the same way that like all the typesetting software assumed that you were already a typographer until desktop publishing came along. Mm. We are still trying to figure out just how simple we can make privacy tools. But I think the answer is a lot more simple than they are now. And so if we hand people those tools, that makes a difference. Because you're right, you should be able to share with your friends. Privacy isn't that you don't share with your friends. Privacy is that you choose who you share with, right? And so giving you the tools that you can use. And the good news is that like cryptography works, right? You know, you've got a supercomputer in your pocket. You don't just use that to throw birds at pigs. That supercomputer can scramble your messages so thoroughly that if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were computers and they did nothing between now and the heat death of the universe but try and figure out what the keys were, we would run out of universe before we ran out of keys, right? So we have new capabilities in our grasp. This is amazing. Um, uh, And so we can make those simpler. We can give them to people. I think that as the privacy... um, as awareness of, of the problems of privacy change, then we'll see markets kicking in, too. I think we're already seeing firms that are popping up and saying, we will offer more privacy. Apple and Google very famously have just turned this on for all of their devices, encryption by default. And the security services are going bonkers. And it's really funny because, you know, a, a, two years ago when the stone revelations broke... The answer of the security services to all of this is, well, privacy doesn't matter. Nobody cares about this. Everybody thinks that what we're doing is the right thing to do. If they didn't think that what we were doing was the right thing to do, they'd all be using cryptography, right? So we're doing the right thing. And now people are starting to use cryptography. They're like, cryptography is really bad. And it stops (laughs) us from doing what we all agree is the right thing to do. Um, And, you know, so I think that making making the market case for it changes it. And I think that helps us change the law because it's hard to pass laws against things that are considered proportionate and good. So the tobacco um, rules are a really good example here, right? The tobacco rules, making laws against tobacco when everybody smoked and there was enough FUD about whether or not tobacco gave you cancer that people had arguments about it, those laws were hard to pass. Those laws got a lot easier to pass as people became aware of those harms, right? It's, It's not... What we need to do is we need to put a face and a name to the harms that people suffer from privacy breaches. We don't want people when their lives are destroyed by a privacy breach to throw their hands up and go, I guess that's the Internet. Mm -hmm. We want them to be able to point their finger at somebody who made a specific decision, a policy, a law, a rule. that created the situation in which their lives have been destroyed by privacy breaches so that they know that things can be better. And so that helps us make legal changes. So we have legal changes, we have normative changes, changes in what we think we should do, market changes, changes in what products are profitable and which ones aren't, and technological changes, changes in what's technically possible. And the combination of those four things are the only way that we're going to solve this.
0: Okay. Corey Doctorow, of course, speaking. If you have a question, there are a couple of microphones uh, going around. So and we're please... going to
1: alternate between people who identify as women are non-binary and people who identify as men are non-binary.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So please, hands up. We'll start with you here at the front. Uh, is there a microphone? I don't think I
1: need... Yeah, you're, Fabulous t- you're right talk. here. I'll repeat your question. Project. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I have a very simple question. Sure. What can you do now to protect yourselves? The, the, you know, if you're a super nerd, there's a ton of stuff you can do to protect yourself. If you're <laughs> not a super nerd, you can go to um, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation's uh, Surveillance Survival Kit. You can go to Reset the Net's PAC, uh, Surveillance Resistance PAC, pack, P-A-C-K dot, dot org. Um Both of those uh, are good clearinghouses of relatively simple-to-use tools for Mac OS... Uh, Windows, Linux, iOS, and Android, uh, and Windows Mobile to protect your communications, to protect your data, to make your web sessions better. They're still pretty clunky, though. I'm going to, I'll, I'll, like, I have to cough to that. This stuff is harder to use than it should be. It's getting easier. I'm on the advisory of a, of a nonprofit called Simply Secure whose mission is to uh, marry the expertise of user, usability and user experience designers with cryptographers and security researchers to build much more usable security tools, and everything that we work on is free and open uh, and designed to be replicable by, by other people further down the line. So uh, I think that we're just one of the many groups that are working on this, and I think that there's a lot of people who are interested in solving this problem. This will get easier over time, but it's and so if you do it and you find that it's it, it feels like choresome uh console yourself with the fact that it will get easier, and you're using it as a normal human and feeding it back, feeding back the problems that you have to the developers because all these tools have good feedback mechanisms built in, the problems that you have that will make a big difference um there's uh, if you're ambitious about this, there's an organization that was started by an Australian named Asher Wolf called Cryptoparty. And crypto party, it's um, like a cross between a Tupperware party and uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and the idea of, of, of uh, crypto party is that you have all your friends over and teach them how to use encryption software. You don't have to know how to use encryption software first because that's where the Wikipedia comes in. There are training materials for using encryption technology, privacy enhancing technology, that are collectively edited by everyone who gives and goes to crypto parties. Um, and if you go to CryptoParty.org, those instructions are there for how to convene a crypto party and get your friends involved in it too. Because privacy is a team sport, right? If you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna communicate with your friends in private and they refuse to use good privacy tools, your, your communications will be an open book. You know, I, I've run my own mail server a, in a cage in Toronto since the 90s. I have an amazing systems administrator. He used to be the CTO of Wikipedia. He, it's a very good lockdown server. Uh, all of my mail is taken off of it. Uh, as soon as I get it, it doesn't live there. So that's only on my laptop and on my backup, and that's encrypted. But everybody I correspond with is on, is on Gmail. And so all of my email, in addition to being locked up in this very secure way, is also in Google's data center where Prism is. <laughs> right? So it's a team sport. <laughs> Thank you. You're next. So
0: you, you seem to put a lot of story in, in cryptography, but there appears to be dark clouds for cryptography.
1: Um, things that seem to be properly spoken about are uh, quantum computing uh-huh. and uh, the back door from the surveillance
0: stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you
1: think the, the lifespan of cryptography is likely in the What's the lifespan of cryptography? Um, so the, the, the deliberate introduction of vulnerabilities in cryptography is why we need both both crypto and free and open source software. It has to be the combination of those two. Free and open source software can have defects. We discovered that with OpenSSL and, and the huge bugs that were found in it. Turns out that just making it available to scrutiny doesn't mean anyone will scrutinize it. But uh, I don't think anybody argues that software is more secure if you're not allowed to scrutinize it. So we need openness. And But in addition to that, uh, you asked about quantum computing. And uh, there's a whole bunch of research in uh, quantum computing uh, cryptography. Quantum cryptography, not just quantum crypto-breaking, but quantum cryptography. I just gave a presentation at the University of Waterloo in Ontario for uh, the Computer Science Club there, and I met these five amazing women mathematician quantum cryptographers who are, who are building really robust quantum-based cryptographic algorithms. So I think that we, we, there may be some seismic shifts and what we do with crypto but I think that the idea of crypto will be intact thank you uh, questions thank you yeah I have a question about
0: Belgium last week where they shut the whole country down and they asked
1: everyone to female their cats instead of yeah down. What was the deal with the cats in Belgium? Like, when did Belgium become interesting? I lived in Europe for... I lived in Europe Anybody for a decade. Belgium? No. The chocolate. Yeah, no, I lived in Europe for a decade, and I, I never thought I would see the, see the day when Belgium was the most interesting place in Europe. Um, uh, cats. So... Uh, That was a really interesting phenomenon. I have to uh, say that I was on an airplane to Australia when most of that was happening, so I I found out about it in retrospect. I wasn't there. I wasn't online when it was all going on. Um, But uh, there were a bunch of people in Belgium and elsewhere in the world who used Twitter who supported the police's mission to uh, not have a lot of information about police efforts in the city um, while they, w- w- during the manhunt. And so they concluded that they would fill every hashtag that was related to Belgium or Brussels with pictures of cats, so that if you were a terrorist or someone who was providing information or help to terrorists uh, in, in Brussels uh, or in Belgium, that um, if you tried to follow hashtags that would seem to be a good source of information, that you would just see pictures of cats. I don't know if it worked, it was a cute idea. Was it a catastrophe? Story. Right. I understand that.
0: Right. But when they took out Osama bin Laden, the Americans had a whole scenario about what was, what went on. But there was a
1: guy there twittering. Like right. It. Yeah, sure. And eventually, the Americans had five different versions of how Osama bin Sure. It. And then they had to complain with what the guy from Twitter had said. So what yeah. I want to know is, why were the Belgians twittering their cats when the security thing was going on? What was really going on? Well, I think that, like, so what was really... Go- I don't know what was really going on. I th- and I don't know that we can say dispositively what was really going on. But what I think we can say, unless you think that all of those accounts were bots, which I don't think they were, because you can see them, they've got... They were, they were real people. I think that that is what democratic legitimacy looks like, that if the police um, are ask the public to do something, and they willingly do it without any coercion or threat of reprisals for failure to cooperate, that... That looks like um, legitimacy. That looks like Mm. the consent of the governed. Now, we can argue about whether they were right or wrong, whether they were made patsies, whether they were bandwagoneering, but I'm the last person who will ever condemn the idea that if um, people want to support their security services doing something that they view as urgent and legitimate, that they shouldn't be allowed to do it. I pull over my car when, the, when there's a police car coming behind it uh, to let them get through with their sirens blazing. Uh, you know, that, those are, I think that, that there are lots of, uh, I, I'm not someone who thinks that the state is never legitimate and the things that it do can never be legitimate. And I'm not someone who thinks that terrorists are great people. You know, my, my, my uh, bus and my wife's train got blown up on 7-7. I happened to be out of town that day, and so she slept in. Uh, otherwise, that would have been us, right? And so I'm just, I'm, I, and I fly a lot. I'm changing the climate, ask me how. So aviation security <laughs> matters to me too, uh, which is why I want like good security, right? I, uh, and why I want like meaningful security, and why you're right, it would be great to find out what the police did and whether or not it was yeah. right or wrong. Was, we're, all
0: of those things were, that all of those people were already under surveillance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We might move on to another question. Right. Uh, thank you, sir, at the back. The solution to everything, right? Do you think they're just dumb and ill-informed? Do you think it's the law enforcement and intelligence agencies that prompt them? Do you think it's a will for power? Um, why is it always the same tool that they reach for sure. whenever there's trouble? Wh- what do you think? Motiv- is the motivation behind that?
1: So some of it is that I think there's a business model. I think spying on people has a business model. There's vendors and procurement. So anything that has a procurement, I think there's someone who lobbies for more of it. Uh, and, you know, I, I, uh, I think that, like, you can see this at work in um, the way that surveillance is undertaken. So the kinds of surveillance that don't involve procurements are being, uh, are being sidelined in favor of the kinds of surveillance that do. So the surveillance, the, the security agencies keep lamenting their lack of human intelligence, which is basically people in fancy dress pretending to be you know, gangsters or whatever. Um, And there's no money in that, right? Nobody makes money from it, and so nobody lobbies the CIA to have more guys dressed like Lawrence Arabia in Afghanistan with putty noses on. And so when they do drone strikes, like the CIA tells us, we kill people with metadata, and we don't know who those people are right, because they have no human intelligence. It doesn't require that the CIA ever sit down and say, from now on, we're only going to fatten the the purses of our pals. It just requires that the only people who ever show up with new pitches for them, and the only people who lobby their oversight in Congress, be people who want one kind of surveillance and not another. I think that there is a, a security tautology that's very tempting. Something must be done, there I have done something. Uh, and um, surveillance feels like it has some meaningful answer. I think big data hype has been really responsible for it. You know, I, I, I lost my, uh, my mind yesterday while sitting in a panel in Melbourne where, where, yet again, someone trotted out the example of Target knowing that a woman was pregnant as example of the fact that big data is just like witchcraft that knows everything before you know it. Knowing that a woman who's bought folic acid is not big data, right it's traditional small data marketing and it's mm. been done for decades what about, power? what about power so that so I talked about that a little the, the idea I think that um, surveillance if you I think that we can like all agree whatever we say about Western pluralistic democracies, I think we can all agree that the reason that Ethiopia surveils as much as it does is because they have an illegitimate elite that has concentrated the power into a very small number of hands. Ethiopia is the world's first turnkey surveillance state. So they have no native ICT capacity, but they have bought off-the-shelf ICT from surveillance vendors in the developed world. And they, are, um, they have a terrible human rights record. They imprison more journalists than any other country in the world. And they spy on people like crazy with stuff that we have sold them and probably that we've backdoored. So we, we're probably, like, watching everything that they're spying on, which means that we have this um, conflict of interest where if we're interested in, in Ethiopia having a legitimate state that respects human rights, um, it means that we res- it restricts our ability to sell them stuff and contribute to our bottom line. And so definitely, I think, all reasonable pe- people will agree that one of the reasons Ethiopian elites want to spy on everybody is they want to figure out who wants to build some guillotines. And, that may be the, and, and I think that it's not implausible that as Western states slide to a level of inequality that has not been seen in living memory, that one of the attractive things about mass surveillance is that it helps you separate the sheep from the goats. Mm-hmm. In the United States, the FBI classes environmental activists, ecoterrorists, as the number one domestic security threat. In the United States, there has never been a single fatality attributable to ecoterrorism. right? They have 15,000 undercover operatives who infiltrate environmental movements in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever else the environmental movement is doing, it's, it's taking certain extremely rich people and making them possibly less rich if it requires them to clean up their act. Uh, and so I, I, I think that there is an element of, you know, keeping your friends, the people who, who got you your job, who funded your electoral campaign, who do your procurements, who you're planning to walk out of your civil service job and into an industry job with keeping those people fat and happy mm. as well. Mm.
0: Thank you. A question? Thank you. You? You've talked,
1: about
0: for the, you've talked about hacking for the greater good. I'm just interested in your views on the likes of Anonymous and their um, uh, mission, I guess, mm-hmm. on the scale of that and mass surveillance.
1: So I think Anonymous uh, is um, a big, gnarly, difficult subject. The best book on Anonymous I know is written by my friend Biela Coleman, Gabriella Coleman, who's an anthropologist, who wrote a book called Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy. Uh, She um, did field anthropology with Anonymous. She spent a bunch of time in their channels, years in their channels, working with them, gained their trust, wrote wrote about them. She's an amazing writer and an amazing anthropologist and wrote very insightfully about it. I think that um, Anonymous has done a lot to show us about the... um, to show us the weakness of security that we depend on uh, and to show us that that people aren't really doing their jobs in securing us and that things that, you know, that when your bank asks you a bunch of things that are matters of public record in order to stop uh, um, strangers from getting illegitimate access to your account, like what's your date of birth and your mother's maiden name and your address, and that seems to be like that's enough to authenticate you to your bank, that if you ever if you ever thought gosh, I wonder how that can possibly work. The answer is it doesn't, right? (laughs) Uh, And and Anonymous showed us that a lot of what is security is really security theater. At the same time, I'm really uncomfortable with vigilantism, right? Not least, as we saw with the 20,000 ISIS Twitter accounts that got taken down, including a bunch of Twitter accounts that weren't ISIS Twitter accounts. Vigilantes get it wrong, Uh, and, you know, anonymous does not have checks and balances and it doesn't have democratic legitimacy and it doesn't have transparency. And some of the people involved with it are completely unsavory. And so I, I, um, I think that it's a socially interesting phenomenon. Um, and, uh, I think that it has done some good, but I can't say that, um, the movement has, or whatever we call it, the ensemble, Biela Coleman calls it an ensemble, that the ensemble has my full support. But they're sure interesting, pretty 21st century. Yeah. Um, a question from over here?
0: Uh, yes, thank you. Oh, okay, that's me. Discarding <laughs> my
1: male privilege.
0: <laughs> okay, so, uh, did everyone hear that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so you were talking about Asher Wolf and the fact that she founded the Crypto Party. Um, I follow Asher on Twitter. She's very good. Um, and she was recently talking about the fact that she has been unable to find employment and she was uncomfortable going through Patreon. And, of course, we all know Patreon was hacked, um, I think, a month ago. Uh-huh. So um, how would you go about monetarily supporting, like, uh, I guess, anything that helps us um, I maybe is not connected to a larger corporation that has another agenda?
1: Well, I guess, um, I mean, I think Patreon has, has, is a great site, and I hope Asher does use it. I would support her on Patreon. Uh, the fact that they got hacked doesn't make them especially insecure. The fact that they got hacked just means that they were targeted because the tools that we have to secure ourselves are not very good. I hope that Patreon will, will do more minimization of what they retain as a result of having learned some lessons the, the hard way. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think it's very hard... In, in this day and age to send money to someone else without um, getting involved in systems that, first of all, end up having your personally identifying information, and second of all, ha- have some element of financial risk, and third of all, end up supporting, by and large, supporting firms that have not been our friends historically, like PayPal, who bailed on, Wikipedia, on, on Wikileaks, uh, and so on. And I think that those are contradictions that we have to live with, uh, and I would rather if, if the only way that we can support Asher's work is to do business with PayPal or to do business with Visa, then uh, that's a trade-off that seems to me to be the right one to make. I don't think we can ever be pure. Uh, I think that you know every vegetarian eventually meets a vegan. Um, Every vegan eventually meets, like, a fruitarian, and every fruitarian eventually meets a breatharian. Uh, So rather than being pure, you know, I often ask people to add up how much money they spend every month on services whose mission is to destroy everything we want to see in the future. You know, your ISP and your... who who oppose network neutrality and your um, uh, favorite video-on-demand service that is... um, lobbying the World Wide Web Consortium to add DRM to HTML5 and and, and, and all, and your fruit-flavored computers that are, you know, whose Alpha and Omega is digital rights management. Uh, and to take how much you're spending every month and figure out how much of that you want uh, to spend to hedge your bets and give to an organization like the Free Software Foundation, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, FSF, uh, Crypto Party. Um, and to me, that, that is how I I try and cope with those contradictions because otherwise I feel like I'd be paralyzed. I feel like there's nothing I could do to support Asher. I don't think, I think of all the things that Asher has to do right now, like cloning Patreon, but making it more secure and making her own payment processor is probably not in the cards. And so I'd rather see, I'd, I'd rather see her make that compromise.
0: Mm. Time for one more question for Corey. Thank you. Yes.
1: feels like you're more concerned about state surveillance than corporate surveillance. Uh-huh. It's kind of astonishing how willing people have been to give up their privacy to corporate entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the states are kind of riding on the coattails
0: of that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything to say about the norms, and do you fight the corporations along with the state?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't think you can ever disentangle corporate from state surveillance. Uh, you know, the way that the NSA spies on everyone is because Facebook has put all that data in a nice convenient package for them. And you know if we expect states to regulate data gathering and retention and use, um, we can't make the they, they will only start doing that uh, in a way that is like evidence led once they stop relying on something that's antithetical to the evidence uh, being the norm around corporations, right? So they, we, they will never ask Facebook to do the right thing so long as they're dependent on Facebook doing the wrong thing. Um, they, they, are, they are intimately related to one another. And so, you know, I, I gave a talk a couple of months ago now at uh, West Point, which is the US Military Academy to their cyber institute. And, you know, a bunch of them said, well, you know, I trust the government because they already have all my data, but I don't trust Facebook. Um, and I often talk to people who say, well, I work in Silicon Valley, and I think that Apple is run by some very nice people, and I trust them with my data, but I don't trust the government. The reality is that there—that you can't limit surveillance in one domain and leave it intact in the other, that anything you did in, in one domain will redound to the other one. And um, the one thing... So corporations can trick us, they can hold us hostage... Um, they can exercise monopoly power, but they have less coercive power ultimately than the state. So a corporation can't ban crypto, for example, which a state can do. Uh, In theory, you can use clouds owned by companies that you don't trust to hold your data, but if you encrypt it before you send it to them, they don't get anything useful out of that data. They can be trusted to hold it uh, and not to mine it because they're technologically incapable of mining it because it's been enciphered so well that they can't decrypt it. Um, states can ban crypto, right? Or they can make terms of use that prohibit encrypting your data beforehand enforceable in law. Um, or they can uh, make the digital locks that prevent you from writing your own client or a third party from writing a client for you that encrypts your data before it's sent to the cloud. Um, they can, they can uh, pass a law that, that prohibits breaking that digital lock. And so if we are going to defeat corporate surveillance, we need to make sure that states aren't uh, legislating in a way that interferes with that. Um, and if we are ever going to get corporations to minimize what they collect, we're going to need states to get involved. Like for example, if, um, if we had the judicial branch start to hold corporations to account for, genuinely to account for losses uh, due to breaches, uh, we would create a, a market-based mechanism for limiting retention in the form of insurance risk adjusters, who would suddenly become incredibly interested in retention practices. So VTech, who lost 4.8 million families' data yesterday, they not only were gathering all this information and retaining it, information that they didn't need, information they shouldn't have had in the first place, they were also retaining it with a, a really baffling degree of technological ineptitude. So they, they weren't um, salting the hashes that they, that they did with the passwords. They didn't have SSL. They weren't protecting against MySQL code injections. I know that all sounds like gibberish unless you're a super nerd. But like that, it's, like, it's like saying, well, they were operating um, a, a municipal bus service that didn't have rearview mirrors, and they never checked the oil, and the drivers were all drunk, right? <laughs> and, um, if you want to start a municipal bus service, your insurance underwriter is going to ask you, what do you do to make sure the drivers aren't drunk? Right? Because we understand that if your driver killed a busload of people, that, um, that the courts would make the insurers suffer and um i think that it's the it's that combination of the state and the market working together that can make some huge differences and i actually think that there's a big leverage point here in talking to insurers and reinsurers generally about data handling practices because the 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 thing that we know is that like even if there aren't um, huge awards being handed down now for data breaches. There will be. There will be, like, really punishing ones. And, uh, in, like, insurers aren't experts in fire safety, but they hired experts in fire safety who've, who've given them crib sheets so that when you, when you call up and you say, I've built this opera house, um, how much will it cost to insure it? They will ask you whether you have a sprinkler every eight meters in the ceiling, you know. Um, and we need them to ask those technical questions, uh, because that will, that will, as much as anything else, have a huge impact on what data is retained, how likely it is to leak, and what the consequences are of it leaking. And the states can do it at the stroke of a pen just by changing the liability arrangements, too.
0: There you go. All the information, of course. You can keep talking to uh, Corey now because he's going to be signing some books, but also on Twitter... You get back to everybody on Twitter. I've noticed that. I'm, I'm pretty
1: good. You're pretty good uh, at it. It depends. Like if I have a 20-hour flight, as I yeah. do tomorrow, uh, sometimes I don't answer all those tweets when I but get you off. But
0: you do, you do it anyway. But also, Boing Boing is an amazing. That's what you're telling me just before about the Hong Kong, the toys. And, yeah. You know, that, that's all up there. So if you, who who looks at Boing Boing? Hands up. Who's really enjoyed hearing Corey Doctorow speak? Hands up. Yeah.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Um. All right, so um, I think I'm going to be sitting over there defacing your books. Yes, deface so.
0: them. Um, once again, thanks from the Opera House. Fantastic that you guys were here for these wonderful series of conversations for Carnegie. And my name's Fenella and book signing with Cory Doctorow. All thanks, right. guys. Thank you. Thank you.